All right, everybody, welcome back. Another week of the Stewcast here. And we've been talking a lot of college sports recently, talking SEC with CVD, Chris Van Dyne, uh, talking the U with uh, Paul uh, Mendez getting after uh, Miami Hurricanes. But I, I want to take it a lot, a lot bigger, go a lot more macro here. And that's why I had to call in a big gun, making his first appearance here on the Stewcast. He is the proprietor of Extra Points, uh, which is a phenomenal blog uh, that's really touching the big aspects of college sports, something that really piques my interest. I think it'll pique yours. He is Matt Brown. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for, uh, you know, shedding some time. I know you're a busy guy, so I appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Happy to happy to hop on here. Yeah, man, I want to jump into it. Uh, talk about nil talk about the football game which is a story you broke and so most people gave you credit for uh, but I want to start with extra points which you know I've, for a lot of folks I think they get stuck in my team you know what what's what's Texas doing what's you know who are we recruiting but there's a bigger aspect where these teams are going especially nowadays and you cover that in-depthly please explain what is extra points and where can people find it sure so extra points is a newsletter that tries to cover off the field issues that shape the college athletics industry um i am not somebody who's going to write about who's going to win a football game or maybe where a quarterback's going necessarily there's so much the other internet that can do that i write about the business of college athletics I write about uh, legal issues and political issues in college athletics. I write about money. I write about conference realignment, about educational research, all these other backend things that shape what is a big industry and how th- this shapes um, who's going to be good on Saturdays, who's going to do well in March uh, and, and why. I do that through original reporting. I've been a sports writer for about a decade. I do that through, uh, through analysis and it publishes uh, right now five days a week on extrapointsmb.com. Folks, sign up, sign up, get smart, get smart out there. Plus, you you won't be able to know this because this is audio, but he does have a St. Thomas Tommy's pennant in the background. He is <laughs> he's he's a gamer. Right? He's a gamer. Love the Tommies. Um, let's. Uh, I want to jump into nil, and I want to approach it from this. And I don't know if you've encountered the same thing. And this is a very new concept for college sports. And the thing I constantly hear is there are a lot of folks that say, well, this is essentially pro sports. I don't really like this. This is weird to me. We might as well just have the top 10, 12 teams and that's it. This is, it's kind of like how the NBA was a few years ago. It feels like where you have Miami and LA and your big market teams, and that's it. We're not we're not going outside of the big market teams. What is your response to that? Because I know that's that's certainly the folks I talk to aren't alone in that. Does nil kind of restrict the competition? Does it eliminate parity in college sports? I mean, so the first thing I would say to that is. On, on, on what on what grounds did parity ever really exist, particularly within college football? You know, we, we have had, um, you know, inequality in recruiting outcomes in college football for 150 years. 
And we've had, and we've had NIL really in college football for 150 years. The, the things that, uh, you know, I think Jimbo Fisher kind of joked about this, you know, last year, but, you know, we've always had NIL. We just called it something different. You know, some of this was bagman money and that's been happening since Yale and Princeton and Harvard were good. Um, we've had some schools have the ability to recruit better players at scale um, since as, for as long as we've had college football. And it's also always been a sport that's typically been dominated by a handful of programs each decade. It's been a little bit more chalky than usual in the college football playoff era. But if you know, if you go back to the seventies, it's Notre Dame and, and USC <laughs> are going to be, be in there most of the time, or, or some Ohio state, if it's in, if it was in the eighties, it's going to be a lot of Miami. It's going to be, and that's kind of where we are here now. So to look back at the pre NIL era at the recruiting rankings and see that Alabama is going to sign 19 uh, four-star recruits out of a 25-man recruiting class. Um, where's the parity there? I, I would also say that I, I think in many fundamental levels, this was pretty indistinguishable from post pro sports to begin with, right? Ohio State's got a $200 million athletic budget. The athletes are not spending 20 hours a week on college football. They're, they're treating this like a full-time job. They're, the coaches, the support staff, the infrastructure is all uh, up here. To, to the NFL, the, the only thing that's really different is that there's not a union, you can't trade anybody and people don't get cut exactly the same way. But the game happens on Saturday and people are still excited. If anything, I think there's an argument to be made that in the short term right now, NIL has actually improved parity. You know, who signed the number one recruiting class last year? And for football, that was Texas A&M, a team that hasn't really won anything substantial I'm, I'm 35. They haven't, A&M's been really good like twice in, in my lifetime and they have recruited well, but typically not at that level. You look at the, you know, for this recruiting, this recruiting cycle here right now uh, and, and who is, who is currently, you know, have elite players commit, committed. Tennessee does. That isn't something that happens very often. The best running back in the country is committed to Louisville. That isn't something that happens very often. Penn State's got five-star recruits. That isn't something that happens all of the time now. Uh, and, and, and this wealth has kind of shifted a little bit more than it had before. So I understand why a fan would say, I am not interested in, in I, I'm frustrated when a, fan, a player might transfer from my program to collect a bigger NIL bag somewhere else. I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated with all of the pocket watch watching and everything. But to someone that says, I don't want to watch the sport anymore. It's too professional. You know, I think I would respond with, I don't think you've been paying a whole lot of attention to how the sports actually worked over the last 25 years. And that's a fair point. And that's, I, I kind of share what you're saying in that sentiment with, with nil, a lot of different schools are doing a lot of different things to your point. Um, and I'm a Michigan state hardo. I mean, that's, that, that's, you know, live and die, right? I'm, I'm donating to nil clubs and uh, conglomerates that are popping up to support the football team, right? But they're doing different things. Different schools are attacking it differently. How do you see um, the vast swath of different nil conglomerates, conglomerates that are popping up? How are they approaching this problem set? Yeah, they're. It's, it is honestly very different from school to school. Um, part of this is because, you know, most Power Five programs and, and on, increasingly more 
G5 and one AAA programs are, are, are having collectives set up. But collectives differ significantly from school to school. Like on, on the least sophisticated level, you've got a couple of schools where your NIL collective is literally, I'm not saying this as a joke, but like literally a bunch of message board dads. And, and it's basically just passing the hat and Venmo and redistributing that money to a couple of athletes. And, and, and that that's fine. That's not a particularly sophisticated operation. I think on the high end, you have some NIL collectives that are running explicitly as talent agencies and marketing agencies where they have access to institutional money, you know, like seven figure fundraising, where they are asking athletes to sign over exclusive marketing rights to those collectives and that the collectives are literally trying to turn a profit. You know, they're, they're running like CAA or Wasserman Sports or, or, or Clutch or any other kind of major talent agency kind of, kind of entity. Um, and you have a bunch in between. You have some institutions that are providing, you know, four credit classes, helping athletes, you know, turn their NIL into small businesses. You have some that are bringing in lots of speakers. I've spoken to a couple of schools and you have some that are, especially these mid-majors are saying, we don't have the money for this. And most of our athletes aren't really interested in it. And we'll kind of grow into this as, as we go along. I don't think we have enough data to really say anyone is doing this right yet because NIL has, cha has changed so much every couple of months, right? Six months ago, collectives didn't exist. And what's going to happen six months from now, six months from now is very different from what's happening um, at this present moment. So I'm wary of anybody that says, this is the future. This is exactly how things are going. Uh, we could say, this is what people are doing. And given how quickly the market's changing, I don't, I, I don't feel comfortable saying, this is exactly what's going to be happening in January. I think there is a general consensus, and I wonder your take on this, that eventually what we are moving towards is some sort of salary cap type situation. Because you hear... With Texas A&M, Coach Saban came out and, and said it quite a bit, but, you know, he was speaking to a collective, right? And there's when he said those comments, um, and you hear stories about, you know, bags being dropped, kids choosing and being very open about nil compensation commensurate with that. Are we headed towards some sort of salary cap? And if that is so, does is the NCAA uh, – does that even exist uh, anymore in, in, under a construct like that? Well, I, I don't think we're headed in that direction in the near future, in the short term. And part of that is because it would be illegal right now. Um, the reason that professional sports have salary caps is because they have collective bargaining agreements with unions. And, you know, in order to get a union to agree to a salary cap, there has to be some kind of concession from ownership or, you know, the, 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 or from managers, right? A minimum salary, uh, minimum spending requirement, you know, protections, that sort of thing. You can't have that in college because right now, legally, college athletes aren't employees. That may change in the near future, but right now that's the case. And even if they were employees, they haven't organized a union. And in some states, it wouldn't even be legal for them to operate as a union because public employees can't unionize in every, in every state in the country. And if you tried, the, if the NCAA or the SEC or any other entity tried to unilaterally impose a salary cap, they would get their ass sued within 12 hours. And that would be unquestionably against antitrust law. I think all, not just Alston, but um, the NCAA has lost multiple lawsuits about trying to price fix, <laughs> whether that was spending on coaches or, or spending on, on, on salaries. So the only way that that happens is if Congress creates that or if we have a union. Um, 
I think that that a union could happen on the college side eventually, but it's not as close to happening now as maybe some advocates in that world would like it to believe. Yeah. And I, I think, I th- I see your point with that. I just, I have a hard time. Things have moved so quickly in the past two years that it really feels, we always talked about back in the day about how the NCAA is, it's just a matter of time. You know, this isn't the, the mid fifties, anybody who brings a, a viable case and there's thousands of them that can be brought was going to kind of topple the pyramid scheme a little bit here. Is the NCAA much longer for this world or do you, is it viable that something approximating what happened in the mid nineties where Michigan and Texas tried to start their own little super conference uh, before that got squashed. It, it, do we see something like that? I don't think so. Um, so th- th- there's a couple of reasons why I don't, I don't think we're going to end up seeing like a, a nap. Um, holy. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. So uh, no, sorry, sorry about that. Some, some big news just broke. Um, shit. What is the big news? No, well, it, it's, it's, a, it's on my beat. The University of Incarnate Word decided to stay in the Southland Conference instead of going to the WAC. And I had reported earlier that that, that was not the case. I'm sorry. Three, no, two, one. Good, um, no, okay. So about, about the Super Conference, I don't think that is as likely as a lot of commentators and um, fans want them to believe. Part of that is um, nobody wants to be the school that pays a football coach $8 million to finish in last place um, in the SEC West. You need to be able to have access to some smaller schools to make the financial realities of college sports work. That's why uh, I I think, uh, and I've had ADs tell me this, like we don't really think there's going to be a full P5 breakaway. In the short term, I do think you're going to see some significant changes to the NCAA. You now have multiple conference commissioners and multiple very high profile athletic directors saying maybe football division one FBS football should be moved outside the purview of um, the NCAA. And maybe that should be run by the college football playoff, or maybe that that should be run by a separate entity and everything else stays in the NCAA. I think that could really, I think that could absolutely happen. I don't know yet how different that would be. Um, The NCAA doesn't do as much in college football as you might think. But there's some real momentum for that. Um, I can also, I mean, is there a possibility that we could see, say, college wrestling moved out of the NCAA and have that run by USA Wrestling or USA Volleyball running the the college volleyball championships and have that be part of the same national sport federation? That's possible, too. Um, beyond beyond that there's 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 just there's there's a lot of changes the uh, I, I the other thing i will say is that there are federal cases moving their way through the system right now challenging the idea of amateurism you know and there, there's a the, it's called the johnson case that's uh based in pennsylvania that is just where athletes at villanova and a couple other private schools at the fcs level are suing for minimum wage that is something that could be resolved in the next 12 months that could um you know, that could force the end of the amateurism model, whether that would end the NCAA different question. We'll go from there. Some, some news there uh, to, to kind of digest as being a fan of college sports. I'll wrap up our nil conversation with this before we take a break. Players wise, 
has no so far has it empowered uh athletes has it done what you know what the athletes have kind of hoped there's always going to be some disparity you know a quarterback for Alabama might make a million a left tackle might not be able to make a million dollars but overall do you think that it's worked out in the best interest of the athletes up to now I think there have unquestionably been some examples here of exploitation by different bodies uh, in, in the NIL world, rather, rather instead of just exploitation by the school, it's been exploitation by agents or exploitation by different individuals like that. This is not a perfect system, but I will say this is overwhelmingly better for athletes than the system was beforehand. And there's been a couple of people that I think have uh, enormously benefited in this world. One of those groups I think would be, are women athletes women who by and large did not have access to uh, big time professional salaries when they finished their careers um, now have an opportunity. Many of them are very, are, can be, be very marketable in the short term, make more money than they would make in the WNBA from their initial salaries, make more money than they would make from professional softball um, and, and, ha and have those opportunities. By and large, it is women who are more likely to do NIL at all than men. Uh, and and, and I, I think that's been an enormous benefit. The other really huge benefit here that I get like legitimately excited about is this idea of helping athletes build a professional network. So one of the things here that I think sometimes fans forget is that if, even if you're at a place like Michigan State, your world as a college athlete can get very small because you can't say, hey, Coach Tucker, uh, I'm a regular college student. I'm studying abroad in Italy next semester. I'll see you in four months. That doesn't work <laughs> if you're a football player, right? You tend to live in, the, in football player housing. You are typically clustered in similar classes. You cannot do the same internships, the same studying abroad, the same uh, you know, uh, club opportunities because you do not have the time. And so even on, on Michigan State's roster, you got 85 football players and, and best case scenario, maybe 25 of them get some kind of professional football contract. Most of them are done playing in the pros in three or four years and then they're, and then they're gone, right? With NIL, you have an opportunity for some of those athletes to be able to <clears throat> learn about financial services, learn about um, sales, <coughs> excuse me, learn about white collar work and build a professional network. So when they're done playing football, they can say, I have people. I have, I, I have some ideas of other careers that are available to me and, and can move along a little bit more and, and have some doors open, which is what college is supposed to be for. It's supposed to be able to help people build generational wealth and move uh, and have class mobility. And I, I honest to God believe that through some of the relationships that are, are, are built through NIL, many of these athletes are going to have the opportunities to do that. That's really worth celebrating. We're going to come back with Matt on the flip side of this break. Talk a little NCAA football. Talk uh, why I'm getting divorced. The two are related. And a little conference realignment right after the short break. What's going on? It's Matt Bernier from the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. Be sure to join us every Monday, occasionally Tuesdays, but for the most part, every Monday, however you listen to your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's YouTube, you name it, you can find it a million different places, including InTheMoneyPodcast.com. It's the Matt Bernier Show. Anything and everything to do with the world of horse racing. All right, back with Matt Brown of Extra Points. 
And I, you broke the news. You got a lot of publicity uh, over breaking some of the news, your FOIA request, a lot of effort you put into digging up what's going on with the return of NCAA college football. Uh, I've already got my leave time set. I've got divorce attorneys on hold. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm going to be dead to the world because I got to take Army to the Sugar Bowl. Matt, what are the quick hits on this game? When, when are we getting it? Yeah, sure. Uh, quick hits is this game is uh, currently on schedule to be released in July of 2023. Um, as of right now, uh, all sides in the industry, both on the school side and the EA uh, sports side, believe every single FBS team will be uh, involved in the game, uh, including the new FBS teams like Jacksonville State and James Madison. Um, what they are trying to figure out right now is one, how they can pay the athletes so they can actually have their, their current likenesses used in the game. That's something that is, uh, uh, that, that, that's being figured out right now. And that they've been asking schools for assets to make sure that they can depict the, the in individual stadium environments as realistically as possible. So they're not just saying, Hey, send us like 1000 photographs of your stadium so we can digitally re-render it on a PS5, but also, Hey, send us what's what song your stadium plays in pregame. What, what sound effect do you play when somebody else commits a penalty? Um, what are you playing and uh, what music are you playing in, in the, in the third quarter? What are, what, what is your student section chant? When, when are they doing it? Uh, they've asked this. I, I've been able to, to document a couple of the things that schools have sent back. They're trying to make this as uh, realistic as possible on every single level. I take everything I own. I cannot wait for this game to come out. And I, I think you you went in depth, and I'll, I'll advise people, head over to Extra Points. You want more information. Matt covered the broad topics, but he, he added a ton of depth. Please go check it out. Um, phenomenal article. Got me ready to go. I'm ready to run through a wall, Matt. Um, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> a few minutes ago, you were talking about Incarnate Word. Uh, staying in the Southland and conference realignment I, 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 landscape has changed so much. And so many people um, forget that, you know, last year we had Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC. The big 12 has changed. Sunbelt's changed. Everybody's changing, not the big 10, but everybody's changing. Um, where this stands, I guess my big question is, have we hit the final, like everybody's made their moves, assuming Notre Dame, eventually they're tied to the ACC. So eventually that move pro probably happens. But are, are you think we, we are set with conferences for quite some time or are there still some dominoes to fall? We are set through the next two weeks. <laughs> We're set through this fiscal year, which <laughs> runs through like July 1st. I don't anticipate any substantial changes at the FBS level in the next year or two, um, but there's still a lot of unsettled ground uh, at the FCS and the one AAA level. I think particularly within the Northeast, if you are a fan of an institution in the NEC or the NAAC, the, you know, the, the MAC or the America East, those are conferences that are looking to expand and, and, and make membership changes. I don't think the Ohio Valley Conference is done. Um, I think the Southland and, and now the WAC that they've lost, uh, you know, the Incarnate Word and, and, and lost a, a couple of different schools now. I think they're going to try to go on the offensive. And I think the West Coast Conference uh, is, is going to continue to reevaluate, you know, replacing BYU over the next six months. So for the mid-majors, there are still definitely reasons for 
you know, schools to, to be rearranging at the, at the FBS and especially the power five level, I think we're done for a couple of years. So I, what I take from that is this is realignment is now going to more so affect college basketball than it will college football. I think in, in the short term, that's probably true. And that's been the case for the last six months too. There's been a ton of mid-major realignment recently. Um, and if so, and for, for, for basketball and baseball, I think that's going to be more of what's happening in the short term. Uh, two teams come to mind. We mentioned the first one already, Notre Dame. Uh, historically, the Big Ten has always uh, come come after them. I've been under the impression that's really tied to the NBC uh, sports deal that Notre Dame has. And, and if you read the contracts, they've kind of saddled up to the ACC as their conference of choice. Is it inevitable they end up in the ACC or can they remain independent? I mean, I, I think as long as there is a, a pathway for them to have college football playoff access, they're going to remain independent. This is a, a uh, they're kind of a, of a, a unique situation here where even if they might make more money in a different league, the um, independence is a structural institutional part of Notre Dame's identity. Um, and their, their boosters and their regents and their biggest donors are willing to take less money in order to maintain that. It's, it's, it's part of why Notre Dame, the school, is as successful as it is. They are legally bound to join the ACC if they join any league, I want to say, until the early 2030s. But the only thing that would change would be if the college football playoff and their, their next deal in the, you know, after 2026 says that you have to be in a conference. Um, if, that, uh, if that's not the case, I think they'll be independent for a long, long time. And also, you mentioned the WCC, obviously, BYU leaving. That still leaves Gonzaga. And there has been a push for Gonzaga to leave. Obviously, no football uh, at the D1 level, really. Uh, but a decent baseball team. Obviously, a, a okay basketball team. Does Gonzaga stick in the WCC, or, or could they make a jump to a Mountain West or to a uh, Pac-12 even um, splitting up different divisions. We see some schools, they play in one, uh, one conference for one sport, another conference for another. Is this a possibility? Oh, I think it would be extremely unlikely for them to join the Pac-12 as they are um, a religious institution, which is not something that the Pac-12 has, has chosen to align themselves with. I mean, anything's possible, but they have a ton of uh, Gonzaga has a lot of control in the WCC. They've clearly been able to make deep uh, NCAA runs and get elite seeds as part of the WCC. Um, I don't know, honestly, if some of the, given some of the changes that have happened with the Mountain West, if that's like that much better of a league right now. Um, we'll see how the WCC expansion goes, but Gonzaga's had plenty of opportunities to go somewhere else, and they've chosen to stay. They have a lot of faith with the with the West Coast Conference's central leadership. Um, and it would it would surprise me in the short term if they decide to do something different. I mean, I mean, we're going to see how how West WCC expansion or realignment goes. But the smart money, I think, at this point would be on them staying. Matt, you are a dearth of information. Uh, I have eight hundred and forty four more questions, but I'm going to save that for next time. Uh, so I can like kidnap you into a, a room here and just pepper you. But once again, extra points, phenomenal, phenomenal newsletter. Can't say it enough. 
once again, where can people get that? Where can people find you and anything else you can plug that you're part of? Love to hear it. You bet. You can find Extra Points at extrapointsmb.com. Publishes five days a week. Two of those are free. Three of those are behind a paywall. So you can support the reporting that we're doing uh, for just $8 a month. Make sure that you get every single newsletter in your inbox. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Brown EP. Folks, the great Matt Brown. Can't wait to have you on again. Thank you for uh, coming on. And folks, we will catch you later this week with the all new episode of the Stewcast. Until then, We'll see you after a while.